Hello and welcome to Deep in the D-Pad, where we explore all things gaming through an intellectual lens. I'm R.K. Taylor, and with me is Carlos Gutierrez. Hello, everyone. And we are discussing game fatigue today. What do we mean by game fatigue? What makes us feel fatigued when we're playing games? Uh, those are the kinds of questions that we're going to be addressing today. But before we get into that, we're going to open with our D-Pad delights. So, Carlos, can you share with us something uh, that delights you in gaming? The Game Boy Advance SP. Like that, in general, that device will be my D-pad delight of the day. Uh, the Game Boy Advance SP. Oh, I can't. Yeah. I don't remember what the SP even stood for, honestly. Like, that would be a great question to answer. That's a good trivia question, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this Game Boy Advance like had a backlit screen. That was like the most important feature for me. And I imagine a lot of other people who wanted the game at nighttime. Because like, when there's no lights around, your Game Boy screen would just you know, not work, right? You needed to have the little, like, squiggly-lined, like, book light to go over your Game Boy in order to see what was going on in Pokemon or whatever. Or sit directly under a lamp. Like... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like yeah. it's nighttime, you need as much lighting directly <laughs> above you as possible. So, with the SP, they added, like, this backlight function, and they had, like, a nice design that I found really appealing, where it was just like, oh, like literally this clamshell you just fold the whole console in half and then put it in your pocket and you're good to go and it made this really nice square shape which was kind of like funny enough in line with like the sort of gamecube product design philosophy of like let's just make this like square and super like modular looking and compact but the game boy advance sp is a console that i played a lot many games that i enjoyed on it and i just i felt like featuring it as the delight because it was just such a good on the go console like arguably it's a better on the go console for me than the switches and that might be somewhat due to circumstances and like you know what point i am in my life versus where I was back when I had the Advance SP. But there was just something about it. Like, the games were great without needing to, like, graphically, like, push super hard. The product itself was good. Like, there was a good battery life to it. When you were done with it, you could fold it, put it away. You know, if you wanted to play it in class, it was, like, <laughs> easy enough to, like, flip it open a little bit, beep, boop, beep, beep, and then close it back up, you know, as if you would your flip cell phone in that same era. And, yeah, I mean, the big ones for me playing on the Game Boy Advance was the Mega Man Battle Network series. Actually, at one point, you know, funny enough, we can do a little side story to this delight. I nearly lost my Game Boy Advance SP, but instead I ended up losing a few games for it. And, you know, the storage isn't saved on the console, right? Not like we have with Switch, uh, where it's saved to an SD card, or maybe there's a little internal storage. But all the save data was on the cart itself. So I'd gotten to, like, the final boss of Mega Man 07 or something like that. And that's, like, several hours of gameplay. Mega Man, very difficult game. So, you know, lots of tries and, and stuff in there. And I got to the near end of it, like, it's the final boss rush where you just got to fight every boss back to back to back till you get to the final guy. And my dad is like, oh, hey, we got to go out, run some errands, something, something, something. And I had this, like, Game Boy, you know, protector case or whatever that would usually have like a little knapsack for the games. And I put that on top of the car and me in my tiny like kid brain wisdom 
was so engaged with the game still that I sort of like, you know, absentmindedly put the case with like my other games on it on top of the car, hopped in the car as I was playing the game. And then, you know, we took off. Yeah, (laughs) we took off. And at some point, and I realized it fairly quickly, like it was only maybe like a minute or less of driving, but I was like, oh no, my thing was on top of the car. And like, I got out the car, go to look for it. And it's like, oh shit, like it's not on the car. We only went down this hill. Can we check the hill? And like, my dad was nice enough to like drive us slowly back up the hill. Like nobody was around. And we like scanned for it and just ultimately like could not find it. So I lost my... Game Boy Advance SP case, like travel case, and I lost like two games with it, one of which I was at the very like final like section for. And that was just so such a burn, I guess. It was just like, ah, why? Like it definitely that was one of those moments of like, I am gonna learn from this. (laughs) Why do we pick ourselves back up? (laughs) The lesson is never play games. They will only disappoint you. They'll distract you from the greater things. <laughs> you're, you're losing, like, the money value, which, you know, as a kid, it's not like you have a ton, you know, of capital just spent on games and also all the progress. But uh, going back to the actual, like, delightful portion of your delight, I I think the SP is an underrated console. I, I completely agree with you. You hit on some good points. Um, the clamshell was crazy because it was, like, the first time you were going to carry around a screen without it getting scratched. That was brilliant, you know? And the backlight, you know, the most important. But also it was backwards compatible, which was really nice. You know, and it kind of gave rise to the, to the like, DS's clamshell model. But DS didn't have backwards compatible for Game Boy games. They had game, a Game Boy Advance slot, uh, but they didn't have the Game Boy games that, that fit in there. So if you had a DS and, you, you know, it, like, let's assuming that you got all of the handheld, you know, models that were out at that time, right? Uh you had to continue to play your your SP if you wanted to play Game Boy games because your kind of DS boxed you out of that. So it was a console that you would keep around, you know, even generations after it was gone because it was like the last way that you were able to connect with these uh, older games. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I feel like it doesn't get a lot of hype or attention. Like there's not like an, a lot of like nostalgia buzz. Not like I'm looking for that. You know, not like I want people to be constantly talking about about that or like I want ten articles about it. But in general, like it is. Uh, uh, was it not ex- successful? Do you know the situation there? So the Game Boy Advance SP was fairly successful, it looks like. It sold 43.52 million units, specifically the SP, which SP, sort of straightforwardly, it stands for special. <laughs> That's what wow, the SP stands really? for. Yeah, oh, it's not man. like DS where it meant dual screen. It's just special. <laughs> Okay, so my delight is the Sopranos trivia game. We're actually kind of stepping outside the D-pad for this, because this is a physical game uh, that my lovely mother got me for Christmas this year. And it's a terrible game. It is absolutely <laughs> trash. It doesn't make any sense. They they try to incorporate poker with like a standard trivia game. But it's it just doesn't work, and it's boring, and the mat is like felt and crap, and like just if everything about it feels unpolished, you know, from the plastic chips. That's a good way to put it, unpolished. Like when you look at a board game, definitely 
unpolished is like something you can notice immediately. There's like two levels of unpolished when it comes to like physical board games, right? You have the like, oh, here's the polish of like, do all the mechanics like work and feel good together? Is yeah. there are things thematically appropriate and connected? But then you have like the actual hardware polish, right? And when you say like the board was felt, you know, like it was like somebody went to Hobby Lobby and like fucking <laughs> stole a little <laughs> bit of like material and went like chop, chop, chop with their sewing scissors and was like here you go yeah tony and the boys they're gonna answer questions to each other now like i totally agree but the trivia questions are fun and it is nice to have a deck of cards that you know we can uh we can go through and you know make sopranos jokes and yeah uh so in a sense you know i i've played the game i once or twice so far i think just once actually but you know i guess that maybe that speaks to the game's quality i don't know <laughs> uh, or just like how many times do you really want to go around with your friends to do sopranos trivia you know but for you know for the friends that i have who do enjoy sopranos it's fun and including you obviously yeah um but it's just fun to go around and and like you know the the game the the game is a conversation starter not because of how good it is but it's it's prompting you you know it's it's trying to get you to to uh show what you know and you know explore things with friends and it's still a way of like kind of bringing people together uh despite the fact that the board itself is is bad and the mechanics you know the 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 idea for the gameplay is bad right uh but i think what what we did in the situation was override the rule set so we didn't get bogged down by the rules i think initially we we did but um soon we were we like liberated ourselves and like once we realized that the that this rule set wasn't successful that this wasn't going to be optimally fun we created a game using the parts that they'd given us you know we were like how can we better this sopranos trivia game uh and then and then we did that right and that that was way more fun you know we didn't like for example right just to take a really specific uh example we didn't have a a limit on the amount that you could bet i think uh and that automatically you know like the way that we're distributing chips isn't we're not beholden to the rule set anymore you know we're kind of creating the sopranos prime trivia game you know it's like uh i mean i I don't know what else to say about that but it was it was a good time uh and i don't know if, if you ever feel like you're kind of bogged down by a rule set that you don't want to be I would encourage you to uh, step outside it and see, and or like collaborate with the people that you're playing with and see if they're willing to step outside it too. You know, I mean, you don't want to be like a totalitarian who's like, we're not playing Monopoly this way anymore. We're going backwards, you know, but like you want to be able to uh, engage with the thing you're playing and not just have it be like, you don't want to just be the consumer. You know, if it's not serving you, uh, you want to be able to mix things up and try to make them more fun, you know? So for those of you listening, uh, Carlson and I decided to do this episode because we watched a donkey video where he critiques Horizon Forbidden West. And in his terms, he forbids you from playing Horizon Forbidden West. That intrigued me because it's generally a well-received game, but in his analysis, he he's essentially comparing it to a bunch of other open-world games and talks about how the mechanics and style overall of the game have been recycled. They've been borrowed from other games. Uh, they've been replicated, essentially, right? Or or remade in in ways that are not fully interesting to him. The ways that he thinks there's not enough novelty brought to the player, and he would expect that kind of novelty to be brought to the player. He wants you to have fun, experience something interesting or new or or thought provoking. Uh, and for him, he 
just it seemed as if he just got bored uh, by the the repetition and uh, familiarity. And uh, so that prompted us to want to talk about game fatigue in general. And that's kind of the general mood that we're trying to get at when we talk about fatigue. Let's get deeper into what fatigue is, though. Uh, Carlos, do you have specific, not just from your own experience, but from, from hearing other people talk about feeling fatigued or things that are related to fatigue? What, what strikes you as evidence that someone is feeling fatigued? So we know fatigue in general to be this thing that is more of like a physical condition, right? Like, oh, I've been doing so much throughout the day. My body is just like extremely tired and I can't do much. Like that's fatigue. If we look at it in like game mechanics, you know, it's often like, oh shit, I ran out of stamina. I can't do certain moves because I'm fatigued, something like that, right? But when we play video games, it's often a more relaxed activity. Like it's way more focused on like the mind and the the sort of fingertips, hand-eye coordination, that type of thing. But we do reach a point where what we're playing is not entertaining us. And that's not to say, oh, this game is frustrating. It's not entertaining me. No, it's more so that you're not getting anything new or something that you feel is like of value or rewarding from it. And I think as that goes on, like the fatigue, the sense of fatigue like gets greater. So specifically to kind of put it into more like design terms, I feel like video game fatigue starts to come into play when the player is no longer receiving adequate novelty or reward for the actions they're putting in. And that action could simply be going out to the store, buying a game, and popping in the disc, right? And it's like, okay, well, I'm popping in Horizon Forbidden West after playing Uncharted 4 followed by Spider-Man on the PS4, and it's like, oh, I am now kind of like a little less excited on this game because what I played from the last two games, Uncharted and Spider-Man, surprisingly, a lot of that stuff is popping up here. So I'm not getting much new except for, oh, big dinosaur combat. Like, that's cool. But maybe that doesn't create novelty on that front as fast or as much as it needs to to hold a 40 to 60 hour game. Right. So it's lacking something essential that that would otherwise satisfy you yeah it's definitely lacking something and i mean it's very different case by case right for some games it could just be lacking an innovation like maybe it does some things well but nothing well enough to comment on and it's not bringing in an innovation to actually speak on other games will pick a very specific thing and even though it's tried and done they will say we are going to make this the best implementation of this thing that we have ever seen and people are going to talk about our game because of this and you seemingly need to have like an innovation or a best-in-class thing in order to like make a splash or have like a lasting impact on people after they play your game and what we often see with higher budget games are decisions that are safer than reinventing the wheel or trying to innovate on something over and over and over again because again, so many things need to get made within that one big budget title. So many people are put to like small individual things within that big budget title. You can only like hedge your bets like so much. At least me personally, when I am experiencing game fatigue, what I sort of feel is like this active uh, 
pressure maybe malaise is a better word like there is some sort of like gloom happening in my mind and or my eyes when i'm playing a game that i'm like fatigued on i'm not feeling super engaged and excited but at the same time it's not like offensive to me so i'm not going like ugh, whatever this game and then like trying to turn it off right it's hitting this like bad middle ground where i'm just like like i don't know some sort of zombified playing it not even zombified really like that's probably not the best word but it's like i'm not playing this because it's fun and i want to keep playing it if anything i feel like i'm going through the motions so it might be that like familiarity and that comfort food but for my interactive mind is what keeps me going yeah what about you like how do you describe the sensation of game fatigue as you're playing is it like on the game as a whole or is it with like just specific elements yeah i would i mean i would agree with almost everything you said i found that to be a really uh compelling characterization of of what game fatigue feels like the thing i want to highlight is that it's different than boredom uh because boredom is something you feel like in a moment you know and game fatigue is something that that you've only that you only feel across a bunch of moments of boredom right you're it's the it is the sense for me of of weaving together the the pieces of boredom that i felt across different games and and also and perhaps more importantly like within a specific game if i'm doing the same thing over and over again in in a specific game or it's something that i've observed in other games uh and i'm i have this lack of satisfaction for what i'm doing you know the the amount of effort that it takes to do something and that could really just be measured in time you know it could if it takes me 15 seconds to do something and it seemed like it was really basic or um there was just nothing that impressed me there. Then I start to feel like, like this kind of like anchor, like this game is like not serving me. It is, you know, it's dead weight essentially. Right. It's, it's like how I could be spending my time more effectively, but I'm not because I'm continuing to play this game. Uh, the only thing that you said that I did not agree with is the comfort food aspect of it. And I think that the game, that game itself that, that is fatiguing me is not, is not a comfort food, but playing games itself is. So the activity of playing games is something that I can continue to go to, and generally I will feel uh, like fulfillment or satisfaction from playing. So I, I, there's almost like a uh, like a cognitive dissonance that's going on, where like I've, I kind of have a lot of evidence that this particular game is not going to be successful, but because of my like, other evidence that gaming in general is something that serves me. Uh, you know, it's almost, I feel like I'm almost getting my wires crossed and I'm sitting on the couch in this, like, like I feel a little stuck, you know, and, uh, the, the way that you described it, you know, you were saying you were struggling with the word zombified, trying to figure out if that was like exactly the right word for me, it is kind of like an apathetic depression, almost like the gloom over the eyes was a really good image. Uh, it's very relatable where you're like, you know, just kind of, there, there's a sense of, of like paralysis almost where you're like, I'm playing, but I don't want to be playing, but like, I kind of do want to be playing. I don't know what else I would rather be doing. Uh, so you, you get into this kind of uncertainty, you know, you're this, this state where you're just like, well, th- this is the path of least resistance for me right now. I'm just going to continue and bowl ahead, hoping that eventually there's some return on my investment. Yeah, exactly. And it makes it that much more disappointing when, Oftentimes, there isn't that return on investment. So a major part of combating game fatigue is knowing when to actually like put the game down. It's like avoiding getting trapped in that 
spider's web or whatever you want to call it, that paralysis. Like when you start to feel it, it's probably worth it to put the game down and try a different activity, maybe even try a different game. I'm not sure sort of where do you draw the line between, oh, this is like the game's problem specifically, or like I've just been playing too many games because you can reach like a holistic fatigue on video games in general. Like if you're just doing that as the only thing in your day-to-day activities with your free time, like at some point the ROI on your enjoyment or the rush you get from like beating something is going to dwindle. Granted, you have a lot of different flavors of video games that you can play at any given moment, but the act of like sitting down and, you know, doing the hand-eye coordination thing, it does eventually get like tiring or boring. So like you need something to spice up outside of the video game in order to make the video game be a little more appealing. But that doesn't excuse these games from like, you know, ripping such similar elements from so many different games that people have already like played before. That's like much more of a like factory line side of like why this thing happens. But for people who are like, Hey, I really like video games, but I don't like when these games make me feel that like paralyzed feeling. Well, like go try a different game or maybe do like a 10 minute yoga session uh, read a chapter of a book and then come back and play the game. Maybe play a game of chess instead. Bust out the Sopranos trivia game if a video game is boring you. And then you're like, oh, well, this is actually really hard to understand and I don't exactly like how it plays. Oh, Horizon Forbidden West is looking a lot better now. And this whole episode isn't to say that Horizon Forbidden West is a bad game. Like, I liked Horizon Zero Dawn. I think I might, like, replay it pretty soon. Uh, definitely considering getting Forbidden West. But it is very apparent that Forbidden West makes a lot of safe AAA moves. And things that get executed in the game are done in a very safe manner, meaning that it is done and stylized in a way that's similar to oh so many other games. And this is kind of just a general stylistic thing for Sony. And maybe I'm kind of getting a little too outside the bubble here. But like lots of Sony games that we see are presented in very similar ways. And I think we kind of see that best when people put together GIFs of like all the different Sony games, but with like the main character running. It's usually like a very elaborate GIF, right? Where you see Spider-Man running, then he jumps, but then he turns into Kratos, right? And like Kratos is about to swing an axe. And then as he's swinging, it turns into Aloy from Horizon. And then as Aloy's about to jump onto the back of a horse, it turns into Nathan Drake from Uncharted. But the thing is, is like as they're changing all these characters, it doesn't feel like the game is changing. It just, you can literally just feel that the wrapper is changing, but everything underneath that wrapper is the same Werther's original that you had like eight years ago playing Uncharted 1. I, I like the example of that GIF. I generally do want to stay away from uh, targeting specific games and also, or even like console generations or anything like that. I, I, I really would like to stick more with the phenomenology you know the 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 player the first person experience of being someone who is game fatigued uh while also getting into the reasons why we find games fatiguing right so i understand you're doing that with the latter right and just to go back to something that you said earlier there is a distinction to be made between 
a person who has played too much games and the game industry that has made too many similar games, right? And both can lead to to the sense of fatigue, right? And nobody can have a fully well-rounded life if they only play video games. If you're playing video games for 12 hours a day, uh, you know, it's like summer break and you're 15, you know, that's like... I've done that. It's not. It's not a good life to to lead. You know. You really should be doing other things. Go move around. Go do some push-ups. Go, you know. Go learn to cook. Like, you know. There, there need to be multiple aspects of your life that you're uh, working on simultaneously in order for you to to reach the the fulfillment that you know that you seek. Uh, and video games are a really great great way to kind of relax and rest and kind of like recuperate if you're if you are doing a lot of other work, but if video games are the primary thing that you're working toward, like you've got to also have like other hustles, you know, like you're just, there's this sense of wanting to uh, like improve oneself or uh, become more well-rounded or even like marketable. If we want to look at it from like a business perspective, Uh, I think of it more as like just a human development kind of thing, you know, like I, like we have this like sense of striving in us. And if we, if we eschew that, right, for the sake of the thing that's most comfortable, we're going to, like, perpetuate our own misery, right? Every day we're going to wake up, we're going to be depressed, and we're going to continue to live the same way. Uh, and you got to break that cycle if, if you're there, right? And that's that's not the only kind of game fatigue that, that occurs, though, right? So assuming people have multiple aspects of their life that they're already developing, and, and they go to play games, uh, and let's say it's, like, a relatively reasonable number of hours per week. I'm not going to put a number to that because I don't want to be overly normative. Uh, but there still is the sense that, that a person could be fatigued, right? There, there still is, uh, there are, like Carlos is saying, there are tropes like across genres, across, uh, across like one publisher's, you know, like library, uh, that, that feel too similar. Right. And it's, it seems to me kind of obvious why, seeing the same game multiple times would be fatiguing, right? Imagine if I wanted to read a book and every single time that I read the book, it had the same plot structure, right? I could read 10 different books, but they all, like the characters were different, but the plots were the same. Or the chapters were like, it was always 1,200 words before the the second chapter started. And the second chapter was always 1,800 words. And then the third chapter was 5,000 words. Wow, how surprising. It was so much longer than the last two chapters. But if all the books that I'm reading are doing that, then by the time I get to the third book, I'm going to be pissed rather than surprised. Yeah, and that right there is the loss of novelty that you're like describing, right? Everything is just becoming super expected. And rather than, you know, being like, whoa, I didn't know this was a thing, or wow, how delightful, which is like what we often experience and feel like moment to moment in the Mario games and the Kirby games, the Yoshi games, like lots of Nintendo games really lean on this sort of like exploration, discovery, and like delightment, joy type thing. But yeah, when the books are all doing the same thing, and hell, even when Nintendo is doing the same thing on itself over and over, like it does get boring at some point. So how do things like the hype cycle and just the like ecosystem around gaming, how could that maybe fatigue us? Like we play the games, we've talked about playing the games and the games not being boring, but you know, giving us fatigue as we're playing them. Is there a possibility that we become fatigued before the game even comes out? 
right? Like, oh my gosh, wow, what a question! That is so cynical. <laughs> it's like I don't even need to play this game. To I'm feel kind of thinking that like I might have personally experienced this through the cyberpunk stuff. I think you can feel fatigue like from trailers, certainly, but you can also feel fatigue. Oh, but this is really hard to articulate. You can feel game fatigue from watching trailers, but not feel fatigue for that particular game. It's just the game advertising, that, like being advertised over, like to being advertised to over and over again. And if there, if it is game advertisements particularly that you're looking into, it, just watching ad after ad could really drain you. Even if, and you could not remember a single ad that you watched, or you could remember like oh my one of God. five. You, know? you are. Just giving me flashbacks to when I went to E3. This is a hundred percent GameCon syndrome. Is like, it, like so, like packs and E3. You know, lines and lines of gamers to play various demos. And while you're in line, all you're hearing are like the loud, booming sound systems for the same two or three ads, depending on where you're located in the site. Right? Like, oh, I want to try Borderlands, so I'm right next to the ad for fucking South Park and the Stick of Truth, and like Borderlands Seven, and who knows, Evolve in the background. And you're just hearing those same three ads over and over and over for like the hour you're waiting in line to play a 15 minute demo and by the end of it dude i swear i had like big final fantasy swag bags full of just dumb gamer shit that i like wasn't gonna use ever and i did not remember like 90 percent of the things that i had like experienced i would have to like ask my friends like what demos did we hang around for like oh I, what was that one thing because yeah you're just being like overstimulated bombarded with this information like even if it's not pertinent to like what you want to know it's just like you know hype 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 get some imagine dragons in there here's a couple of gunshots that sync up to the imagine dragons song oh and now we're gonna tell you like a vague release window and all of that blends together so quickly because at least on the hype side of things like everybody does their hype the same that's why I, my breakdown of the imagine dragons trailer is going to describe like 80 percent of the commercials that come up you're, you're raising an interesting point from the perspective of the companies who are trying to market their games. Namely, how do they entice people who already have seen game trailers, right? How can they make their trailer fresh? How can they, uh, how can they charm you? You know, how can they compel you to play the, their game, buy their game, remember their game, right? Without giving away what's in their game that will be fun when you play, right? So that's it's a really tough balance because you want there to be if I if I buy game X and I could, because the trailer looked really good and then I take it home and the 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 trailer or the game has nothing that the trailer didn't have right if the if the game is just everything that the trailer showed me it would be and nothing additional I will be bored. I will be fatigued, potentially. Right? I'm more likely to be fatigued. But if the game, if the trailer doesn't show me anything that should interest me, then I won't buy the game. So they have to be interesting, but not too interesting that, that the, the payoff of the game will not be satisfying. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. They have to give you a lead, basically. Like, don't reveal all the secrets and mechanics of the game, but give just enough for people to be like, oh, I want to spend money to see what the rest of this is alluding to. Right, yeah. They, they got that hook. Yeah. 
which in my opinion, it's a lost art in the movie world. <laughs> Too many movie trailers just giving away all the good bits or anything important. Thankfully, we don't really have that in video games, at least not yet. It's easier to spoil a movie than to spoil a game. You can spoil the story of a game, but that you have to play a game in order to feel it. You know, you have to know what the, the the difference, the latency is when you press jump and like you know, or like you need to see how long your character can hover before you know. Like, there's so much, so much game feel that goes into you know. Yeah, that, that and just knowing what interactions you have and what mechanics are present, right? Like, you can know what genre something's in, but you don't know exactly what mechanics are present. And that's kind of where I lie more so on spoilers, right? It's like, if I don't want to know about a game, I am, like, sold on the premise. Maybe I saw, like, a tiny bit of, like, mechanics. But from there, like, I want it to be a surprise box. Like, I don't want to know that Kirby has mouthful mode. I don't want to know that, like, Scorpion from Mortal Kombat has a new special chain in this version. I just want to know Scorpion's in it, and Mortal Kombat's still Mortal Kombat? Okay, cool. Like, let me let me discover this stuff and have those ooh-ah moments as I'm playing. Because that's, like, what really helps, at least for me, to fight fatigue. Is, like, keeping things secret in order to have that novelty when it shows up, right? And I do this for movies to a fair extent as well because I want to, like, go into the theater or load it up on my streaming box and say, like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting this. Whereas, like, you know, half of my friends are like, bro, that was in, like, the first trailer they put out. And I'm like, that's great. I'm so glad I didn't watch that trailer because this was such a nice surprise, and, like, just that for video games where it's like, oh, Horizon Forbidden West. Like, I know I'm going to fight dinosaurs. I know there's going to be some platforming. Okay, I'm I'm in for that. Don't tell me anything else. Like, don't tell me there's going to be a grenade launcher or some sort of, like, hunting animal type aspect because I am just going to be along for the ride at that point, right? That's why I try to avoid the hype train. Long story short is, like, I want to keep those games as surprising as possible. Yeah, you're saying there's a selfish reason to avoid the hype train. Yeah, you you want to be you want things to be preserved for you, um, you know, kind of in their in their original state. And like in some sense, if they're not penetrating your mind, if the advertisements are not getting through, then you're able to go in blind and like experience the game for what it is uh, for and kind of like how it really ultimately should be experienced, right? If we if we can make such a claim that there is a right way to play a game, often going into a piece of media without any prior knowledge is a really uh, like almost like the most authentic connection you can have to that media because you're not you're not in the cult, in the zeitgeist the marketing BS bubble you know yeah and you don't necessarily have that built communication that's something that I think about a lot on the design side is like people who don't play video games right if they approach my game will they inherently understand it can my game elegantly explain itself and like how to engage with it to a player who's new and this kind of like goes back to a conversation we had at some point about like tutorials and like having to relearn how to play a game even though you know we play games like all the time why do we have to relearn it but we have to think about the one player who like has never played a game and can this game actually like you know communicate with them and they can figure it out like i think what you said is right. It's not that it is the best way to some extent. It's kind of like, it's the purest way to play a game, I guess. Right. It's similar to maybe tunic. I mean, to bring up something that we're playing more recently, like 
if you don't know how to play games or if you haven't played games in so long and then you come into like a triple A game or something like that, it's still this kind of experience where a game is speaking a different language to you, one that you have not read or seen before, and you sort of have the piece together, like, why is there bird shit on this ledge? Like, why why is there bird shit everywhere on these ledges in the world? Why is it that they put, like, these weird yellow and black hazard stripes on certain things? I guess that means I should stay away because they're building off of, like, human intuition as opposed to maybe past video games that have said, like, no, this is big and yellow. Like, we want you to grab onto this. What about outside of games, though? Like, do you have fatigue happening when you're not playing a game? Like, we've said it already. Like, yeah, okay, watching the hype train and stuff. But let's just say you're going to the mall right? GameStop's not there. You're just going to the mall to pick up some khakis and some kid walks by with an Among Us shirt. Like, does that trigger you? Are you like, I'm so fucking tired of Among Us. I just played 13 hours. I got off the game. I'm sick of Among Us. And then some little kid walks by and his shirt says Amogus and has like the little blue guy on it or whatever. Like, are you extra fatigued by that? Among Us is an interesting example. I definitely felt fatigued by Among Us. Uh, I mean, considering I, I played it, uh, you know, only a few times. Uh, you know, like probably all together, I've played less than ten rounds of Among Us. But I still, I saw it everywhere, right? Like you're saying, like it was on T-shirts, uh, and also just people who didn't play games were talking about it. Uh, and it just seemed to be this like kind of like mo- this like cultural moment, you know, kind of like Animal Crossing, which I-, I have similar feelings about. Where it's like I don't really ever want to sit down and play Animal Crossing myself. It's not my kind of game. Among Us is not my kind of like it's I like I like the werewolf card game. Like I played that as like a teenager, like way more or like Mafia is like another version where like the character roles are just different. But I, I believe uh, that those card games are essentially the same thing where it's like asymmetric gameplay. One person is is like bad, and then the other people have to try to bust the person who's bad is essentially the the format of those kinds of games. Uh, it's a format I'm familiar with, but like I didn't feel like Among Us did something spectacular. You know, I think the fact that it was around for several years before it went viral is in, is is interesting. I mean, it kind of on some level shows there I don't know. There are a lot of lessons that we could learn or extract from that, but I don't want to get into that. I just like I'll just I'll drop that. But even something like uh more recently I saw like a Sonic 2 billboard. And it's like I'm driving around right now. Like I don't need I don't need this. I don't need to be inundated with the game stuff. You know, I think about games enough. Like I don't need to see you, Sonic. Like go away. You know. And even though I think I think Tails was the one on the trailer, and Tails is my favorite character in the Sonic universe. But still, I was like, get the hell out of here. Like I don't need this. You know. Yeah. So we want our gaming like in gaming appropriate areas, which I feel kind of similarly about like maybe a bunch of different billboard type advertisements or whatever. But yeah, definitely after living in LA for a while too, like I became so hyper aware of the amount of advertising happening to me in the real world, like every few feet. It's definitely a lot better now, but I totally feel you on like the, okay, I am not going to watch Sonic the Hedgehog 2, you know, just for sake of example. Like, I don't need five back-to-back posters of it on my sidewalk on the way to 7-Eleven. Or, you know, I am not 
interested in the Academy Awards. So why the fuck am I seeing billboards up? That's all just for your consideration, for your consideration. Like, I don't want to watch any of these, right? But their hope is, is that, I don't know, some <laughs> Academy judge sees it and like, it's like, oh, you know what? Sonic the Hedgehog 2? I have been sleeping on that. I guess I'll check it out. And then Jim Carrey's like on stage winning an award and giving some existential speech. But getting back to the main D-pad at point, right? Games or hints of games outside of the gaming space can lead to us like just being fatigued of the idea, not having the experience of the sort of like glazed eyes and like super mushy mind sort of feel that that's the actual like game fatigue but this is more of like oh the idea of this game like i'm sick of it now because i've just seen it too much it's been talked about too much like i would have been interested in maybe trying this game out if i hadn't heard eighteen thousand people at different instances in the last week all tell me wow this game is really good you should try it wow and we see that extend to other things like let's say squid game or like anything let's say game of thrones as well any sort of like big media that's like part of like a growing and growing zeitgeist or scene there are those who are like okay well you guys have talked enough about this that it's annoying to me now. I don't want to engage with it at all. But I feel like it takes a lot more for that to happen. I, I don't want it to come across like I or we or like this, like have this like hipster attitude where like if it gets popular, then we're done with it, right? It's not like we don't like it because it seems uncool now that other people are are interested in it. It's it has to do with the fact that it's like kind of like oversaturating my my mind space. I, I don't have a willingness to play something that I'm forced to engage with all the time, even when I'm not playing it. Knowing that a million people are playing Among Us because they are because there are a bunch of memes about it, because my cousin who never plays video games is talking about it, you know whatever the the case may be, I'm getting all of that is investment that I'm doing a, like really without much choice. And there's no return on investment because it's like, okay, I'm going to have a conversation with someone about gaming when they don't know anything about gaming. They don't have any pieces of media to compare this to. We're not really going to be able to have an intellectual conversation about the nature of gaming based on this person's experience, but they're excited that they're playing it and they want to talk about it, you know? And it's like, I'm willing to have that conversation. Like, I'm happy this person is having a good time. But in my free time, I am not, in, like, it's, I'm, I'm less interested, you know? I... It, it will take more, this game will have to do more for me in order to get me to, again, be charmed, you know, like to be enchanted, to like fall for this game in that sense, you know, it's like I've already, it's already here, like I already know about it, I'm already dealing with it, you know, it's like, why would I then download it and play it, you know, because someone asks me, and th that's really the only situations I've been in where I've played Among Us are like invitation based, I'm never going to invite people to play Among Us, I think it's enough people have played among us we're good like we can play a different game now y'all so how long does it take us to become fatigued specifically that feeling of the in-game like i am actively playing the game and i'm feeling fatigued by this now like how long does it take for us to get there that depends on so many factors, and we've touched on some of these factors earlier. We talked about, you know, whether or not you have a well-rounded life, whether or not you're playing, you know, things besides video games. We're talk we've talked about the amount that one person can stand to be advertised to. Uh, we've talked about, like, cultural fads, like with the Animal Crossing and the, and the Among Us. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know that for me, there are, are uh, like, mechanics, or there are things that, per like, trigger me to feel fatigue. 
Uh, and I think that that would be the best way that I could go about answering this question. Just take it from a personal experience rather than try to generalize. Yeah. But uh, things things that like kind of interrupt uh, like mechanics, things that, that disrupt the flow of the game for me. So like I, I'm talking about like dense story with like lots of reading or or long cutscenes, even things like like not having a sprint button or like a character that's just like moving too slow. Like the all of those I, I view as. Uh, preventing me from having the optimal relationship with the character. You know, like, I want to be able to navigate this world as, as quickly as possible, as joyously as possible. And if you're, and if I'm being bogged down by either mechanics that are not fast paced enough for my interest, or by bad storytelling, or storytelling that would better be in a book or in a movie rather than a game, you know, I, I want the storytelling to primarily be mechanical, you know, to be, to be intertwined with the mechanics in a game. I think that that's really where the most important storytelling in games lies, because otherwise it would be in a different media. Um, so if it's failing to do that, you know, that kind of vision that I'm p- putting on gaming, uh, I would say those are the kinds of things that are most likely to fatigue me. How do you want to answer this question? Do you want to go personally? Do you want to talk about in general what you think people are fatigued by? I will go personally and then maybe take a layer to see what we can call as general fatigues. Hit me. What do you find fatiguing, man? For me, what I find fatiguing is very similar mechanics. It's going to tie in a lot to just novelty in general. But if I have experienced like very similar mechanics to something else, and these aren't mechanics that I find especially juicy, then I am going to get tired of playing your game more quickly. For example... If a game has action reload from Gears of War, right, it's not going to inherently make that game fun for me. Like, there's a VR game I was playing recently where, like, everything in it was very lackluster to me. But I was cutting it some slack because I enjoyed the active reload. But definitely much sooner than later... I was just so tired of that game and kind of just like forcing myself to play it rather than actually like choosing to go in and play it. So very similar mechanics. It's not a guarantee that like, ooh, I saw this in Gears of War and it's done very similarly. Like this is going to be fun. But if it's something like, oh, this is the movement and grinding and tricking system from Jet Set Radio, but now it's in like a completely different environment or something like that, that I could see being a lot less fatiguing like that's a very cool system that we also don't see often i guess is the bigger point there right like the devil may cry style system where you're trying to get combos to build up from an f rank combo to like triple s ranks like we don't see that super often so when we do get to see that recreated in a well-executed way in a different game that presents a similar mechanic but it is still a fairly new novelty. So for me, very similar mechanics, just sort of like being used for the heck of it or you know, not innovating on how that mechanic's been used before, as well as extended no novelty time. So like you mentioned the long cutscenes. For me, it's like going 30 to 60 plus minutes without having anything new introduced to the game. And this doesn't mean simply oh a new mechanic a new gun a new ability is introduced to you it's like hey like why don't we go to a different setting why don't we have different enemies that appear you know enemies with different abilities or they could be enemies that just like really look different like if it was like oh i'm facing humanoid enemies this entire time now suddenly they're monstrous creatures that don't even really have a human form 
that's like an interesting mix up to things. If I don't have any sort of mix up for a long time, then I definitely start to get tired of a game. I think boredom might come before fatigue, you know, now that we talk about this, because when I get no novelty time for too long, I do start to get bored of a game. And if I push myself to play the game while being bored, it starts to negatively impact. And I think that's where the fatigue comes in. It's like the more sunken costs that I'm like putting into this, the more I'm thinking like, oh, maybe a new mechanic is going to come right down the road. Maybe if I just play another 30 minutes or clear another hideout, I'll unlock a really cool thing. And that's where I think the fatigue starts to really come in. It's like, oh, this isn't like performing the way I want it to, but I'm going to give it a little more chance and slowly realizing that that chance like wasn't actually worth it. It kind of burns both the game and myself. So those are my personal factors, just like lots of similar mechanics with no innovation and just extended periods of no novelty, nothing new being introduced to spice up the game. I think that latter half is sort of the general note on like a lot of games that can become fatiguing. And that's kind of like tough to speak on a little bit because, you know, there are so many players out there that like love themselves some Madden or some FIFA and even Call of Duty in general. And like those games don't seem to like heavily innovate or introduce new novelties like Dude, between matches so and things like that. I would love to talk about that, like a full episode about about that exact topic. Like the the games that the iteration on them is the year. Yes. Stagnant you know, or games. Like the Jersey. Yeah, stagnant games. Yes. Ooh, that's such a good title. Damn, look at you. Yeah, Shit, Madden's been in stagnation for like a decade, maybe more. Yeah, like personally I like I I I've been trying to like workshop you know, this in my mind, you know, for, for a few months, it's like, I was originally thinking that there were two pulls to a game for me. Right. And that would be that, that the game is either, uh, doing something new, you know, there's something new about this game that I really can't get elsewhere, or, you know, I could get it in an equivalently, in an equivalent type of game. And then at that point, it's just about like kind of a matter of taste. Right. Uh, if, like, there are two new features that were simultaneously created. Uh, the second thing is, uh, so we got novelty. The second thing is uh, a better version of something that I've already enjoyed in the past, right? So, like, iterating, you know, like, it's like you want games to continue to, to improve. The developers of, you know, game A influenced the developers of game B, and game B made, like, a superior version to A, or not not even, but maybe, like, that specific mechanic or that particular aspect of it was superior. You know, they're two, they could be two completely different games. So, originally, those were the two things I was thinking. And then I now I'm thinking that the third one I want to I throw in there is also, like, historical. There are historical reasons for playing games. So, you know, you could play Mario 64. Like, let's say you're 16 right now. You When you were a kid, Mario 64... By the time you were born, Mario 64 had already come out, I suppose we could say, right? Uh that there are better Mario games to play, you know, but going back and playing Mario 64 and seeing what it was like at that era, uh, there's something beneficial about that, right? You get a better understanding for games overall by by engaging with that text. Uh, so as of right now, those are the three reasons why I personally think that I play games. Uh, 
there may be there may be others out there, but you know, I don't know. That's kind of a fun exercise. But if assuming one of those conditions is, is met, I think I'm not going to be fatigued. I might I might find myself bored at a moment. You know, I might need to set breaks and and stop playing for a little bit. But if one of those things is happening and I'm actively engaging with that, you know, mentally, then I uh, I don't see how I could be fatigued. Could genres in general become fatiguing? Like taking the scope off of specific games? Do you think like genres as a whole? I do recall us recording something about roguelike fatigue. Um, I know I have definitely experienced that. I think you probably experienced that at some point. And that seemed to be a case of very similar mechanics without iteration on them between titles. Or maybe just the formula as a whole hasn't been iterated on enough to like keep us going on that. But does that mean that... like? roguelikes in general fatigue us or do we come back to it at some point right like does the fps genre is that entirely fatiguing i would personally say no because occasionally we get something that is like very innovative like portal is a first person shooter for sure but it's a puzzle game and you're using portals right um you could potentially take what remains of edith finch even though you're not shooting, it is very much like a first-person perspective game, and you're like going. It, it that's like it's like a walking. It's like a walking sim. Kind of. It's definitely like a bit of a stretch to say like Edith Finch is a first-person shooter because it's obviously missing the shooting aspect <laughs> of it. There's no shooting at all. There's <laughs> nothing remotely close to shooting in that game. But there is something there where it's like, is the genre itself like fatigued? I usually lean on the side of no, because when we start to hit boredom in a genre, we start to see a lot of innovation. And at least nowadays, it seems to usually come heavily from the indie developers. And then whichever indie developer hits it big, then the corpos will try to recreate that mechanic or whatever X factor, like revitalized that genre. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the aspect that like corporations are going to do uh, what they think will make them the most money, and if they see that roguelikes are really successful, then they're going to make roguelikes, right? Or if they see FPS uh, games are, are really successful, so they put a lot of resources into that because they assume that people are going to continue to buy those. Uh, but there's the there's the effect of of us running ourselves into the ground. If I'm searching for roguelikes, regardless of their popularity, if I'm going to try to play as many roguelikes as I possibly can, it, even if the even if the world, you know, is not uh, as obsessed, or even if the culture is not as obsessed with roguelikes as I am, right? If if there are only ten roguelikes and I play all of them, I will run myself into the ground and I will be personally fatigued. But that was kind of something I did to myself, right? We there are obviously way more than ten roguelikes now, um, and I have personally felt fatigue from roguelikes. But I also do think that they are currently my favorite genre. Uh, part of the problem with that is that they're not really. It's not. There's not a lot of expl- explanation about what that genre is in terms of like what the gameplay will be like. It. it in the sense that you don't know if it's going to be a like 2D side scrolling platformer or uh like a you know 3D first person shooter right like that like so there could be a, there are a lot of different there's a lot of variation uh that like within or like even isometric shit you know i mean it's like there's so many different styles of of like perspective and then and combat and you know like even ones without combat probably you know and you know, I talked about Boyfriend Dungeon, like, a couple weeks ago, and that that's a roguelike. And we recorded roguelike fatigue, like, maybe, like, six months ago, eight months ago. I don't even know. But, 
you can be revitalized once you see, once you have that novelty again, um, or just by putting it down for a while. It's like I'm not going to play roguelikes for like three months, and then I can come back to them, and I'm kind of like I have more tolerance for them again. You know, it's like a tea break for your for your video games. Yeah, yeah, and those especially need to happen with these like more live servicey games. Like when you talk about roguelikes, for me, a big part of the fatiguing aspect is like this sense of like, well, I'm not really getting any further. Like, sure, you're clearing out the levels and rooms and whatever, but like, you know, it's sort of this endless game. So it eventually feels for me, it feels kind of like futile in a, in a way. And I'm like, uh, I need to take a yeah. break. Like, and then maybe I'll come back and do a couple runs on like something. And the other side of that is that it's easy to pop in and pop out of, you know, like that's the, that's the benefit. One of the benefits that roguelikes have where it's like, you can just do one run and it's like a finite ending, you know, like you, other games, it's like, you can just play them until you beat them. But a roguelike, you can just do a run, you can, you know, and it's, it's like a good, it's a good session, you know, like it's kind of a built in time index component uh kind of like how some games you know i I think nintendo primarily are like an overcooked where you're like kind of traveling around a map uh and then you'll jump in a world and then you could finish that level right but once you're finished with that level like you don't necessarily want to stop you there there is no obvious break point but when you die in a rogue like like all game stops you restart at the very beginning and at some point you're just not going to want to do that again you know so you you kind of it forces you to put the game down in that sense So something else I want to bring up in general with the fatigue aspect is the bandwagoning and general trend chasing of game industry stuffs. We saw this happen with Battle Royales, right? Where like Player Unknown's Battlegrounds really blew up. It's a first person shooter, has like a third person option. Oh, and now it's like 99 people falling onto a map. Oh my God, we need all these games to do this, right? And we saw like multiple Call of Duty games start to put Battle Royale into their title. We saw games as weird as Tetris and Pac-Man and Mario implement these Battle Royale style modes, but they weren't battle royale in the sense of like everybody goes into the map and they try to kill each other, first person shooter, third person shooter style. We saw it more so like everybody has their game board and they're working together to do whatever and, you know, knock people out. So like definitely battle royale in general got like super quickly milked by the industry, but it also just as quickly began breeding innovation within the idea of a battle royale going from first person shooter to now like how do we make pac-man work as a br how do we make tetris work as a br how do we make marble blast ultra work as a br that type of thing so that's like that's really cool but at the same time like can we actually appreciate the innovation when the fatigue is already like present and came in so fast the other example for like a trend that might get fatigued like rapidly will probably be this like werewolf among us style of game right like among us came out uh during pandemic among us like got very popular among streamers and things like that and then you know, a couple months go by and all of a sudden Fortnite has its own Among Us mode and you see like more Among Us style games being featured on like PlayStation State of Plays and whatever else. So like we have this obvious like genre of game that's like coming up more and more. Some games are using it as like their whole game, right? 
and you have some games like Fortnite, which are just using it as like an extra mode. But like, is that the next thing that's going to get fatigued? This is all, is it already fatigued? I don't know because like, I don't really play much of these games that are featuring an among us mode, but it definitely seems like the bandwagoning everybody just thinking like, Oh no, there's money on the table. The, the boogeyman money on the table. Like we can't let it just sit on the table. It's going to burn if it's on the table. Like, Everybody chasing for that quote-unquote money is just, like, expediting the fatigue process, as well as, surprisingly, the innovative process. I think one of the problems with this kind of innovation is that uh, it's, it's a little sloppy, and it's not truly inspired in the sense that it's more like replicating a trend. Or, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like if I'm in charge of a studio that works on... Tetris, and I'm tasked with creating a new innovative Tetris game, and then everybody is playing a Battle Royale, or everybody's making a Battle Royale, obviously I'm going to think of Battle Royale. Like, nobody is, like, super impressed that te- that someone came up with the idea of a Tetris Battle Royale, and the execution was fun. You know, like, I yep. like Tetris 99, but in general, once once Nintendo has multiple, you know, like, first-party uh, Battle Royales, my relationship with them is to play them very briefly, like understand the novelty and then let them go. You know, like I don't want to feel fatigued from the Mario. It wasn't Mario 99, right? It was like Mario 31 or something like that, but it it was the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I played it, you know, like for a couple of days, you know, and then I was like, okay, I got a feel for this. Like, I understand, I understand what this game is. uh, But I wasn't excited by it. I wasn't like gripped by it. You know, when it was first released, I, I mean, when it was first the trailer, I was really excited for the trailer. But by the time it came out, I don't know if I just played too many battle royales at that point. But it, it just it didn't feel as special to me as I was expecting or something. You know, I mean, maybe that's part of that's something to be said for fatigue in general is that uh, it, a sense of disappointment. You know, like with you know the hype cycle that we've talked about in the past, and uh, with the fact that that developers or publishers trying to get you on the hook, right? Uh, it's very easy to get off that hook if the game, for some reason, doesn't live up to your expectations. And maybe maybe your expectations were set too high, and that could be your fault or the, the publisher's fault. Uh, but if it's not meeting that bar, that sense of disappointment, you know, it makes you feel like there's, like, it was like a sunk cost. All this excitement that you had was for nothing, you know? And it's like, well, now, well, now what do I do? Do I continue playing this game that I was really excited for that I spent all this money on? Or do I let it go and play something that will actually give me some, some form of uh, enjoyment or, or novelty that, that I didn't get from this game? Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about how the genre was kind of like reshaped to fit the game as opposed to like the genre being rethought to actually like improve the genre. And that's part of the trend chasing thing, right? It's like, and let's say I want to make a Tetris that's popular because it's Tetris and it's the best parts of Tetris accentuated and put up front versus I want to make Tetris popular by using a thing that's like already popular and seeing how Tetris can like live within that box and those two end products we have from the two processes that I talked about are the Tetris effect and Tetris 99. And granted, Tetris effect wasn't going for any sort of battle royale thing, but it was like, if you think of it from a more abstract, maybe philosophy type of side, Tetris effect is very much like this is a celebration of Tetris. This is 
going to lean into like everything Tetris does and could do and like make it cool and interesting and immersive the most immersive Tetris experience we recommend that you play with headphones <laughs> so like full Tetris right and then you have Tetris 99 which is very much like okay this is this is like bare bones Tetris but we managed to like work in this game mode into it. It's not like uh, innovation to the game mode. It it is just here is the game mode of Tetris within the game mode of Battle Royale, and there maybe isn't like a a really good marriage of like ideas happening there. There's not a good melding of mechanics and presentation, something like that. So to circle back to kind of like my main point, I'm saying that like it seems like for you especially like there needs to be a innovation and like a harmony if like you are going to try to like mash this game into this genre or something like that. Yeah. Similar to like the Werther's original example, I guess. It's like you can taste the Werther's like even though they're putting a different Tetris wrapper on it. Yeah, I mean, if you're developing a game and you and you decide, like, I want it to be part of this, like, I want it to fit in with all these other games that came out within the last five years, I feel like you're kind of doing a disservice to that game because you're playing a comparison game. And often that's that's dictated by, like, what the market, market demands, right? But it, it doesn't feel like you're having... If you make a Pac-Man Battle Royale, I don't know that you loved the idea of a Pac-Man Battle Royale as much as you thought a Pac-Man Battle Royale would sell. Is that is that the best possible way to feel and play Pac-Man? Was Pac-Man always, like, kind of break... Like, Pac-Man demands Battle Royale. We just didn't have the... We had hardware limitations that didn't allow us. No, I mean, I don't think... I, I don't think before a Pac-Man Battle Royale came out, like, there wasn't this massive wave of people demanding Pac-Man Battle Royales. They were like, if, if I could have had Pac-Man Battle Royale in the 80s, my life would have been perfect. You know, like, like I just don't feel like that's a thing. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to like really mesh with what. Uh, it, it seems opportunistic, I guess. Like I, the that's my bottom line. I feel like I'm being scammed a little bit. My attention is being scammed. It's like Pac-Man is cool and retro, and battle royales are trendy, and you know, like there's a there are in you know they're in fashion right now. So you should want both of these things and. I, I don't like. I don't need that. I don't like. I, I I think I did play that game, but I have no like mem- vivid memories of that. You know, and I think that that kind of speaks to my point of like how quickly it's fatiguing. I don't. I like. You know what I'm saying? Am I making sense? I feel like I'm like just trailing off, and I don't know. I'm I'm fatigued by this conversation. Damn it! <laughs> I'm fatigued about talking about fatigue. If you're a frequent listener, you know that. We have been rotating our third segment, just experimenting a little bit, trying to figure out what works for us uh, and what works for y'all. And the new segment that we bring you this week is This Day in Gaming History. The intention for this is to explore the day that the podcast is going to be released. We've planned in advance what day the podcast will be released, and we will assess what happened on that day. Either one or two notable events that happened on that day. Uh, The day in question, the day this podcast will be released, whether you're listening to it on this day or not, is... May thirty first. Say happy. Say happy May, Carlos. Like let's, let's give, let me hear something from you. What do you want to say about May thirty first? What brings you joy about May thirty first? May thirty first marks us basically going in the summer, and that's all I can be happy for. Love me some summer times. I want to get there sooner than later. 
But what has happened through so many years of gaming history on specifically May 31st, what can we call out that has happened as like an important point in gaming history for the day of May 31st? 23 years ago, uh, which is May 31st, 1999, Superman 64 was released. Oh my goodness. Superman 64. Cross, you play this game? Yes. I remember renting Superman 64 once or twice from my local, I don't know, Hollywood video or whatever they were called at the time. And it was not fun. It was not a good experience. (laughs) Yes, this is a notoriously terrible game. One of the worst reviewed games ever. Like, if you go to Metacritic, if you go to IGN, wherever you go, like... This is going to be on people's shit list. Man, is it always the licensed games that come out so much worse? It's like there's so much <laughs> there's so much hope for them and and like you know you have to communicate with the the company or, that you're licensing from and oh man, yeah, but this game basically just like if you I recommend uh checking out some some footage of this game. It is uh I guess hilarious is like in in a word. You're just flying through rings, but it looks so clunky and they make you restart in this game so frequently. Like, as soon as you fail a challenge, you know, they, they really require a level of perfection that nobody can attain, you know? I, how old were you when you played this? Do you remember? Oh, man. I think I was probably 10 years old or less, honestly. Like, it was very early on. And when you talk about the perfection, like, yeah, at times it feels like almost one of those, like, runner-style games where it's like, oh, I need to, like, jump and slide at the specific beats of the music in order to, like, pass the whole level. Otherwise, I'm playing the entire level from the start. That's definitely how some of the segments of Superman 64 felt. I remember just very much struggling with flying, and that's what so much of that game is, is flying. But, like, more so than struggling with flying was just learning how to, like, interact with the world or yourself, Meaning when I need to go from flying to like just standing on the floor to like beat up a bad guy, I can't even understand like what button I need to press. It's not something simple where I just like fly to the ground and he naturally senses ground is nearby and just like is stepping right. And if there's a car getting ready to hit like a baby in a stroller, nothing in the game has really told me how to like pick up the car. Is there a bad guy in the car? Should I just punch the car to death? And then you get a game over because there was an innocent man who was looking for his glasses in that car and Superman doesn't kill innocent people. So fly through the rings again. It was just not fun. And, like, the later levels just become, like, these indoor mazes of just nonsense. Yeah, you're bringing up something that, uh, to tie back to our our earlier segments, you're talking about confusion and uh, also frustration, I suppose. Uh, And I think those are also things that can lead to fatigue. On this day in gaming history, a game that no one should play came out. More at eleven, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> what Superman movie was that? Uh, was it was it tied to a specific one? This was tied to the WB Kids Superman TV show that eventually became like Batman and Superman. I think it was just called The Adventures of Superman. In the game, Lex Luthor has trapped Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, and Professor Hamilton in a virtual reality version of Metropolis that he created wow. with the help of Brainiac. 
leaving it up to Superman to save them and break apart the virtual world. So Superman has to go into VR where he somehow still has all of his Superman powers because they built that for him. This is so weird as a as a VR developer. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like they're talking about VR like so many years before there was even like a, a working model, you know? Yeah, well, this is 99, so the Virtual Boy had come out. But like even then, right, like VR was just like not actually VR. So uh, in either case, like my brain is slowly breaking from like thinking about like how they thought VR would work and like try to tie it into the story or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brainiac creates VR. Superman goes into VR, and that's why all the rings are present. And maybe that is why Superman doesn't know how to do shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when Superman gets close to the ground, maybe that's why he doesn't understand how does he walk? Cause he's like, this virtual reality world doesn't work like mine. Help me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that there's like a, their narrative tie in, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, Oh, I was being deceived the whole time. No wonder this game sucked. No wonder I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it's like, uh, it, it was intentionally clunky. That wasn't a bug. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Thank you for listening to Deep in the Deep Pad. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends. For updates and discussion, follow us on Reddit at r slash Deep in the Deep Pad, Facebook at Deep Deep Pad, and subscribe to Deep in the Deep Pad on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the bell. And if you want to ask us questions or you had a chance to share your own Deep Pad delight on the show, Email us at askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com. Be sure to put question or delight in the subject line. Big thanks to 8-Bit Jazz and Kevin McLeod for supplying the music for the show. 